There's one big debate that goes on in many families during the holiday season and even before, and that is, do you begin listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving? And there are people who have strong feelings on either side. I can tell you my wife has very strong feelings about this, and June is when we start listening to Christmas music. That is, I can get up on June, in June and I will say to Alexa, Alexa, what's the day going to hold? What's the weather going to be? She'll say, good morning, it's June the 2nd. It's gonna be 98 degrees, you're gonna get a sunburn. Would you like to hear holiday classics? And, and, uh, and so she loves it. After three decades, I thought, why fight it? Uh, and so for the last seven years, it's been, uh, it's been much easier in our home. We start listening in June. Getting ready, for, uh, getting ready for Christmas. But whether you start listening to Christmas music before Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving, people love Christmas carols. They love Christmas music. And whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, most people in the United States are raised during the holiday season hearing the great truths of the gospel in Christmas carols. Uh, maybe the most famous Christmas carol of all, maybe the most popular or the favorite Christmas carol for many of us is entitled Joy to the World. Uh, Joy to the World was written by Isaac Watts. Many of us don't know the name Isaac Watts, but Isaac Watts is one of the great hymn writers of the Christian church. He's responsible for such hymns as Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun. O God, our help in ages past. And what is a favor for many, when I survey the wondrous cross. Isaac Watts was a gifted hymn writer. Isaac Watts was born in the 17th century in Southampton, England, and he was born in a very dark time. Uh, mankind, at least Europe, was still recovering from the bubonic plague. And being raised in Southampton, uh, he was raised among a people who knew the ravages and devastation of that plague. Uh, people that were still suffering the ill effects from the loss of loved ones and the sickness that continued on. He was raised by a, by a family that was very, very interested in education. In fact, his, his father ran a boarding school that was primarily about educating children. So he received a very, very good education. He was ordained to the gospel ministry at 26 years of age. And so think about this. This man at 26 was a minister of the gospel, trained theologically, gifted musically, and able to combine those two magnificent gifts for the glory of God and the edification of the church. Isaac Watts, to me, is a magnificent reminder that we don't need song leaders. That's what we used to call them, song leaders. We don't need song leaders. And even in our day, what we're often doing is turning over one of the most essential aspects of congregational worship uh, to, to people that are, that are not theologically equipped uh, to lead God's people in worship. What, what, what many people are doing, many churches are doing nowadays, is they, they have someone who's very gifted musically with a, with a passion for Jesus, 
genuine, authentic, heartfelt love for Jesus, but they have very little theological training. Now, what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needs are theologians who are musically gifted and at the same time passionate and zealous in their love for Jesus. That's why one reason I'm very grateful for our worship pastor. Our worship pastor believes that the songs that we sing should not be trite, they should be theologically robust. I'm his, I'm his direct supervisor, and as we get ready to meet here at the end of the year, I will ask him how many books he's read this year, and it will be somewhere over 30 books, many of them very substantial books. He, he's a man with a passion for theology and a love for worship, and that's Isaac Watts. I, I mentioned that Isaac Watts was, was born into a rather dark, time filled with uh, uh, the aftermath of a plague, and he was also born in an age that was spiritually very dark. His family were known as nonconformist. Nonconformists were, were people that believed over and against the Anglican church that the Christian worship should be guided by the Bible. The, the Christian truth should, should be the means by which we evaluate what we sing and, and how we preach and what we believe. And the Anglican church, at least in that day, found that very offensive. And, and so Isaac Watts' family were persecuted. And his father was in prison when he was born. And his father would live most of his adult life in and out of prison due to his, to his theological uh, convictions. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn Joy to the World based upon his meditation and study of Psalm 98. That's where we're going to be this morning in Psalm 98. You don't usually go to Psalm 98 during the Christmas season uh, to think about a passage that prepares us to continue to celebrate and to reflect on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the third in a series of four sermons that are related to Advent. Uh, the word Advent means coming. It means coming. It celebrates the, the coming of our Lord in his birth, and at the same time it celebrates the coming of our Lord in his heavenly return. You'll see both of these themes in Psalm, 90, in Psalm 98. Interestingly enough, the, the tune that we sing it by isn't the, the first tune that it was sung by. One of those young whippersnappers in the 18th century changed the tune. And sometimes we complain, why can't we sing the tune we've always sang? Because the, the tune that we are singing isn't the tune that originally was. But as tunes are often updated and, and, and crafted for new generations of believers, that was true of the song Joy to the World as well. Well, would you follow along as I read from Psalm 98? And then I want, to, want you to notice uh, that this psalm breaks down into three stanzas. And each stanza centers around a different group of people worshiping God. First three verses will be the people of God. The next three verses, the world of God's people. And then the last three verses, the creation of God. 
Uh, Psalm chapter 98, verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the, let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. As we work our way through the, through the song this morning, something you'll see is that many of the stanzas reflect very clearly the imagery and the message of Psalm 98. Psalm 98, it's a royal psalm. By a royal psalm, I mean, it was a psalm that was written, a psalm that was, that was penned in order to celebrate the coronation of a king, uh, to the enthronement of a king. And, there, and there's no king that's ever been coronated or no king that's ever been inaugurated more glorious and more magnificent than the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ. And although this psalm was looking forward to the coming of Christ, as we read it as Christians and reflect on its message, we see more clearly than the original author of this hymn did how it resonates so beautifully with the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and his inauguration as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want you to notice in the first three verses with me this thought. We should sing joy to the world loudly and joyfully for the salvation Jesus has accomplished. In these first three verses, I want you to notice the repetition of the idea of salvation and the repetition of the thought of singing and celebrating. Uh, go back to verse one with me for just a moment. Circle every time a word is used that relates to worship in some way. And it will stand out as a stark reminder to you the next time you read Psalm 98 that this is a hymn written to worship a king. So he says in verse 1, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. In ancient Israel, whenever God would accomplish something great and magnificent on behalf of his people, they would write a song to commemorate it. They called it a new song because it carried the idea that God has done something new, something unique, maybe something that he has not done for his people in the past. So they say, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for them. Notice the focus is on God in this opening stanza. For he has done wonderful 
things. That is, when the people of God gather together, we focus our attention on God. We focus our attention on what God has done, what he's accomplished on behalf of his people, and what he has accomplished to bring glory to his own name. And so the focus isn't on us. The focus is on him. When we make the focus on us, we become evaluators of what is transpiring. When we put the focus on him, we are extolling him for what he has accomplished. And notice how he has done these wonderful things. He has done these wonderful things with his right hand and his holy arm. Now, God is a spirit and has not a body like man. That's hard for for us to comprehend. And so the Bible uses metaphorical language. It takes language that usually maybe is ascribed to the hand or to the arm, and it attributes it to God to describe what God has done. And so when he says that his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory, it means that God has done it by his own power. God has done it by his own person. God is the one that is to be given glory for the victory, for the victory is first and foremost for him. What God does for us isn't first and foremost for us. It's for him. And we gain the benefit and we gain the blessing of how God glorifies himself For example, in the salvation of sinners, we make it about us. We think first and foremost, it's about us. Well, it is about us, but it's not first and foremost about us. God has saved us to be his treasured possession. God has saved us to be a demonstration of his grace. God has saved us so that he can receive the glory for what he has done. We benefit from it, obviously. We are the ones that relish and cherish the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. But first and foremost, God has done it for himself, not for us. So it's he's gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. Notice all of the references to God, all of the pronouns that relate to God. Sing to the Lord, he has done, his right hand, his holy arm. The victory is for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. That is, God has made his salvation known to his people through the message of the prophets and through his holy word. He's made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations as God saves his people and redeems his people and builds a kingdom of his own. It's to be a message to all the world, to all the nations of the greatness of the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the power of almighty God. Notice the reference there to salvation. You'll notice with me at the end of verse three, there's another reference to salvation. As they thought about salvation, they thought about God's salvation of victory over their enemies. As we as believers read this and contemplate it and think about it, we realize there's a salvation greater than victory from our enemies. There is a salvation from victory and a salvation to victory over sin, death, and Satan. So he says again in verse two, the Lord has made known his salvation. 
He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And so God is saving for himself a people. And we as a people are to take that gospel message across the street and to the very ends of the earth, across the street and around the world. God makes that salvation known through the articulation of the gospel by his people. Now listen to to this stanza, and you'll be able to follow on the the, uh, overheads. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Those words remind us of Genesis chapter 3. They remind us of how Adam and Eve fell in temptation and were cast out of the garden. In the most idyllic setting mankind has ever known, the Garden of Eden was closed off to humanity. And Adam and Eve went from this magnificent and beautiful garden to a land that was filled with thorns and thistles. And where work had been a joy, it became a toil. And the gospel is to go and to remind people that the curse that the world is under and the curse that mankind is born into is a curse that can be removed through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we should sing joy to the world loudly and joyfully because of the salvation that God has accomplished. And again, you see the word salvation twice in the first three verses. John Stott had this to say. The major mark of justified believers is joy. Some of us aren't familiar with the word justified. It's a Bible term. It means to be forgiven and counted righteous. What he's saying here is that those who are forgiven and counted righteous should be a people of great joy. We shouldn't be pessimists. We should be optimists. We shouldn't be depressed. We should be encouraged. Not because of the world. If you look at the world, you will become depressed. If you look at life circumstances and that determines the level of your joy, you will live in discouragement. But when you look at Christ and the cross and the accomplishment of all that God has done for us in Christ, the Spirit of God within us will produce through us the fruit of the Spirit, joy. So John Stott goes on to say, especially joy in God himself. We should be the most positive people in the world. For the new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by a self-centered triumphalism, but by God-centered worship. Man, what a beautiful reminder. Christmas is about worship. This season of the year is about focusing our attention on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be filled with the joy of the Lord during this season of the year, maybe as much or more than any other season of the year, particularly when we think about the fact that we are justified, that is, we have been forgiven of all of our sin, and we have been counted righteous in Christ Jesus, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that God has done for us in Christ.
Well, that's what John Stott has to say. Let me turn to an even more significant author, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 writes these words, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful prayer. You know, sometimes in my prayer time, I I think maybe I've run out of things to pray for family members and friends and for members of the congregation. Here's a perfect place to turn to. This is a prayer. He's asking God to do this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. That's a spirit-inspired prayer. That's a God-inspired prayer. Some of the prayers we pray may not be the will of God. This is the will of God. It's written by the Apostle Paul. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is God's will that this be fulfilled in his people. So rather than having a sour disposition, we have a gracious disposition. Rather than having a depressed and downcast demeanor, we have an upbeat and optimistic demeanor. Why? Because the God of hope has filled us with joy. We ought to be able to sing joy to the world loudly and joyfully because of the joy that comes from the salvation that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. But there's a second thought, a second stanza to this psalm. It's in verses four through six. Sing joy to the world loudly and joyfully, for Jesus is our King. I mentioned to you earlier, this is a royal psalm. And when it was written, the psalmist would have naturally been thinking of God. But we are reading it as a Christian people. We're reading it with a fuller understanding of the idea of kingship. We understand that there's, one, there's a king greater than King David. We understand that there's one seated at God's right hand. He is king of kings and lord of lords. It's emblazoned on his thigh. And when he comes again, every eye will see and every ear will hear as the angels introduce the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Look in verse 4 with me. Again, continue to circle all the words that relate to worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord. C.S. Lewis has written that if there's anything that characterizes the worship of the Hebrew people, it's exuberance. And that's absolutely true. You see it here in this psalm. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. And so we use musical instruments as the people raise their voices in song to King Jesus. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, Shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. Notice that verse four begins, shout joyfully to the Lord. Verse six ends with shout joyfully before the king. The king is the Lord. And what a beautiful reminder that in this season of the year in particular, 
the carols of the faith, the hymns of the faith ought to be resonating in our hearts and minds as we meditate on all that God has done for us in and through King Jesus. Listen to this stanza from our hymn. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. What a beautiful stanza that inspires us to be genuine, authentic worshipers of King Jesus. There are those who will know him as judge, but we know him as savior. There are those who know him as enemy, but we know him as friend. We should be a people of song. But you don't just drift into becoming a worshiper of King Jesus. In fact, the tendency of the fire, as I've mentioned before, is to go out. For many believers, there was a time in their life when they, they just could not wait. They could not wait to get out of bed on Sunday morning to gather with the people of God and worship the Son of God. And now, it's, it's not that they're opposed to it or they're resistant to it. They're just casual toward it. It's not inspiring. It's not intoxicating to have the thought, this morning I gather together with the people of God to worship the Son of God. This is the best day of the week. How did we get there? How did we move from a place of absolute passion and zeal and hunger and longing and thirst? It didn't happen overnight. It happened gradually. We didn't fan the flame and fuel the fire. And so suddenly theology and truth become important, but it doesn't fuel passion. We love learning, but we don't love serving. If you don't love serving, you've not, lear you've not learned learning. If you don't serve in the church, you don't understand the truth that you read and study. And if you don't sing loudly and boldly and confidently, then there's something that you're missing from this psalm. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. There's a casual Christianity that permeates the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that is absolutely abhorrent to God. And it is by those who are theologically sophisticated and others who are just disinterested. Don Carson puts it this way. People don't drift toward holiness. They drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. And drift toward disobedience, call it freedom. But there's going to be a day that I serve Oh, there was a day that I served. There's something wrong with that kind of thinking. It, it misses the heart of the psalm. And so we see this psalmist is encouraging us to shout and to sing joy to the Lord. Well, look with me in the third stanza with this third thought. 
Sing joy to the world loudly and joyfully because Jesus has come and he is coming again. In some ways, this this hymn, Joy to the World, and this psalm, Psalm 98, relates equally well to Jesus' first coming, and at times maybe even more so to his second coming. I mentioned earlier that there's three stanzas, and the first stanza is the people of God that are to worship. In the second stanza, it's all the nations of the world that are to worship. And in the third stanza, the nations of the world and the people of God are joined by creation because creation is under a curse. And there's coming a day when the curse will be removed. And in that new heaven and new earth, we will experience what Adam and Eve experienced only in a more glorious and joyful way. So look with me beginning in verse 7. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Notice we've got the sea. We've got the rivers. We've got the mountains all joining in joyful worship of its creator God. Before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. As we read this, we know that he has come and we believe equally that he's coming again. When you think about those two comings, what a contrast. The first time he came, he came as a helpless infant baby. When he comes again, he will come as a triumphant warrior king. Uh, In his first coming, as I mentioned, he was defenseless. In his second coming, he'll have a sword that comes from his mouth to slay his enemies. The first time he came, he was surrounded by his mother and father in a, a, a cadre of Animals, the next time that he comes, he'll be surrounded by an angelic host. There will be the angels of heaven and the redeemed who will will join him as he establishes his earthly kingdom. The first time he came to die, the second time he comes to reign. The first time he came to purchase a people for himself, the second time he comes to judge those who are not his people. There could not be any greater contrast than between the first two comings, but what binds them together is the goodness of God, the glory of God, and the greatness of Christ. Listen to the words, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. What a beautiful stanza. What beautiful and magnificent lyrics. In fact, we're going to sing this song in just a few moments. Uh, let me direct our attention to, to just a, a line. 
Let every heart prepare him room. As you well know, we were not born Christians. You don't morph into Christianity. You can't be raised into conversion. You can be nurtured and instructed by your parents. You can be brought to a church that believes the gospel and preaches the gospel. You can stand and you can hear gospel songs rich in gospel theology being sung. But from the very highest levels of religion, there is a rapid road to hell. Those who opposed Jesus most were those who knew the Bible best. Much like the world that Isaac Watts was born into, Jesus was born into. Jesus was born in a world that was morally and spiritually dark. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king of the Jews. Herod the Great was a maniacal egomaniac with psychological illness. He murdered two of his sons because he feared that they would try and usurp his authority. He murdered his favorite wife, then regretted it, and had her body uh, preserved in honey. Those who opposed Jesus were thugs and hooligans. They controlled the Sanhedrin. They oversaw the temple. Not every rabbi, not every Pharisee was equally legalistic and condescending, but many of them were. And the Pharisees were Jesus' harshest opponents. They knew the Bible better than any other people in all of the world, the Pharisees. There is a road to eternal damnation from the highest levels of religion. Isaac Watts didn't write this hymn, as I mentioned, in an easy day. You know, sometimes we're just looking for an easy day out in the future. That's where I'm going to get it together. That's when things are going to come together for me, when things get a little bit easier, when things are a little bit quieter, when things are a little bit better. If Isaac Watts had waited for a better day, he would have never written joy to the world. And if God had ever waited for a better time, he never would have sent his son. But in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. And, and at an age when, when mankind needed a word from God. Listen to these words. Joy to the Lord, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods Rocks, hills, and plains. Repeat the sounding joy. Well, Jesus has come the first time as Savior. He'll come again as judge. Let me mention just two final thoughts for those longing to sing the true meaning of joy to the world in a spiritually and morally dark world. First, for those of us who know Jesus, make today the day 
when you become the kind of worshiper, even more the kind of worshiper that God wants all of us to be. We're all growing and maturing and none of us have arrived. Think about the idea of discipleship as, in, as a as spiritual growth when compa- and compared to physical growth. I was telling someone yesterday at the age of 16, I pitched for scouts from the Cincinnati Reds. And the problem was I was five foot eight. The difficulty is I'm still five foot eight. I didn't grow a single, a single inch from about 16, 17 years of age. You, you, don't see many, you don't see many people pitching in professional baseball that's five feet eight. You know what, some of us are at the same place or maybe even less so spiritually now than we were when the year began. Or where we were three, five years ago, we look back to the good old days. Don't allow the good old days to keep you from growing and maturing and developing into the kind of disciple Jesus wants you to be. And a part of discipleship is being a person that knows how to sing joy to the world. Uh, the, second, the second group I'd like to address are those who do not know Jesus. You may be, even be, a, mem- you may be a member of this church. You may wonder, why is it that my spiritual life has been unbelievably stagnant for decades? It could very well be that you don't know Jesus. It may be that you walked an aisle, you were baptized, or at least it appeared to be a baptism. But there's no transformation. There's no continuing transformation. Either you are spiritually sick or spiritually dead. It could go, it could be either way. Some of you just, you just know you don't know Jesus. You just know it. Like I did at 19. I just knew I didn't know him. It was obvious. It was evident. There wasn't anybody that I was trying to fool. I just, I didn't even, I didn't even understand what the gospel was at 19. In just a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing joy to the world. It may very well be that this morning you'd like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. Maybe you'd like to talk to someone about church membership. If you come forward in just a moment, uh, you can speak to one of our staff members who will introduce you to someone that will, that will take you out and speak to you privately and, and confidentially. But for the rest of us, as we sing joy to the world in just a moment, let's sing it loudly, let's sing it boldly, let's sing it confidently because of what we know about the Lord Jesus Christ to be true and how we feel toward him. So I'm gonna ask you if you'll stand Will I lead us in a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much today that our Savior has come and our Savior will be coming. And so, Father, as we sing, receive glory and honor and praise from the lips of your people, and we pray, Holy Spirit, along with the Apostle Paul, fill us with all joy because of the gospel that we believe and the God that we love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.